0: Well, good morning, and, um, you know, thanks for bearing with me as I uh, am post-operative on my knee surgery, Um, so I'll be sitting today. Um, We're going to be continuing on in the book of Exodus, and for those of you that have been kind of trafficking with us in the book over the last few weeks, you've realized that we're not going necessarily, like, verse by verse, like, little point for point. We're kind of doing a big, quick flyover of the book and getting the big idea of the book and how it relates to... Uh, who God is, who we are, you know, to life, and, and doing kind of this overarching narrative, taking a look at the, the big picture, uh, the forest as opposed to the trees, if you will. So today we're going to be looking at two iconic passages. Uh, we're going to be looking in ex- at a passage in Exodus 20 and another passage in Exodus 32. Uh, so Exodus 20 and Exodus 32, and um, the verses will be on screen. Uh, so the first one is Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5 and you can remain seated here today so that I'm in good company, okay? So Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's Exodus 23 through 5. And now we're in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know, we do not know what has become of him. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. So we have two different texts, and here's the setup. The first text, Exodus 20, the text that we read, Exodus 20, those first few verses are God giving the the first few of the Ten Commandments, right? You should be somewhat familiar, even if you're new to Christianity or not even a Christian at all, this idea of the Ten Commandments, right? So that's the first few Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Then we read Exodus 32, which likely takes place only a month or two after Exodus 20. So they're given the Ten Commandments, and about a month later, everything that we read in, in uh, Exodus 32 takes place. And basically, as, as we saw, the people have already broken virtually every commandment as it pertains to God in the span of like a month. So what happened? How did they get it wrong so fast? How did they get off track so quickly? And, and are we any different? Like, what's the lessons in it for us as we relate to this? Um, Let's back up even more and give it a little bit more context and a little bit more history um, and revisit some of where we may have already been here in Exodus. So God has raised up Moses, and then through Moses, God has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And the way that he did that was that God brought plagues on Egypt, and he brought his people through the Passover plague, rescued them from that. And eventually Pharaoh relents and Pharaoh and Egypt say, okay, fine, you guys are free to go. So God leads them out of Egypt. Then Pharaoh changes his mind. I change my mind, go after them, get them and kill them or bring them back as slaves. So they're pursued by the Egyptian army. They escape by God parting the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. And as Pharaoh and the armies are crossing the Red Sea. God closes the Red Sea over them and kills them and wipes out their enemies for them. They continue on their journey leaving Egypt, and God provides food and water for them. I mean, He just totally delivers them, totally redeems them, totally rescues them. And then after all of that, after all of that stuff that God has done, we land in Exodus 19, and God proposes a covenant a relationship. He proposes uh, an agreement, a relational agreement with the people of Israel. And we read that in Exodus nineteen, five through eight. I think this is going to be on screen as well. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's God speaking to Moses. So then in verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, and this is underlined so you can see this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So God proposes a covenant promise. You'll be my people and I will be your God. And, and so, um, you will be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. And then, uh, the people say, great, sounds good to us. We agree to this. So, Moses says, okay, uh, come on up to Mount Sinai. Or God says this to Moses, come on up to Mount Sinai. So, like Moses goes up on Mount Sinai with God yet again for a second time. And Moses is then given in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. The, the passage that we read here at the very beginning. You know, you um, serve no one else but me. All the Ten Commandments, right? And then God or Moses comes down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments and says a second time to the people, does this covenant look good? Here's what God is proposing. And a second time in Exodus 24, verses 3. Uh, that will pop up the second time. They say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so this is the second time. They've agreed, yes, God will be our God. We will be your people. All the words and commandments that you've given to us, we will keep, Lord. So a third time then, God says to Moses, all right, a third time, come on up to Mount Sinai. The people have agreed now, twice over have agreed. And so we're going to solidify this. And God says, I'm going to give you stone tablets, Moses, right? We're familiar with this idea of Moses with the Ten Commandments. And so for the third time, God says to Moses, come on up to the mountain. I'm going to give you the, the total law, and we're going to inscribe them on the stone tablets so that it's a memorial so that you guys can remember. And so uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, and you can see that in Exodus 24, verse 12. I don't know if we have that on screen, but that's okay. We'll keep on moving. So Moses goes back up on the mountain, but he's gone for a while. He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you read in Exodus, from about Exodus 21 all the way to Exodus 31, those 10 chapters, uh, which take place over the course of about 40 days, given it to Moses— Those 10 chapters are just what God is giving the law to Moses. So not a lot of time transpires between Exodus 20 and Exodus 32. It's only about 40 days. And the people assume that Moses has died or that something has happened because he's gone for a while. And then that is when we get to Exodus 32 and they build the golden calf and break the law. And I want to juxtapose then uh, so we can understand this how it's like they almost intentionally tried to break like all of these commandments. So we've got a slide that's going to show Exodus 20, verse 3, compared to, I think, Exodus 32, verse 4. So look at this. This is crazy. You shall have no other gods before me. A month later, they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The next one is um, Exodus 20, verse 4. God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or on earth or in the water. And in Exodus 32 verse 4, what do they do? And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Strike 2. Strike 3, Exodus 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, right? You're not supposed to worship them. Exodus 32 verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings. It's like they went down the list of the Ten Commandments and were like, okay, number one, let's break that. Number two, let's break that. Number and they did it in the span of a month. So what, what is going on? Like on one hand, we would look at this and say, how did they get this wrong so fast? And like almost intentionally so. And I think that um, being so situationally removed and culturally removed from them, it's easy for us to kind of look at them and judge them. Like what were they thinking? Well, I would, we would never be like that, right? Silly people literally turning their backs on God right away. But if we think like that, and I have thought like that, tradition I've looked at this passage, I've been familiar with it all my life, and then this week it suddenly kind of came alive to me. It's like, oh, wait, actually, my story and your story is played out in this story pretty much all the time. Every week, every month, every year, our story plays out just like this. And actually, I think that what they did is probably pretty benign and innocent compared to the way in which we kind of do the same thing. So let's talk about the way in which this narrative here mirrors our own experience with God. So the first way that their story mirrors our own is this. With them, God leads and always leads with grace. He leads with blessing. That's their story. He, God has led with gift and generosity. He initiates that. Right? Before they have the law, before they're given commandments, before God proposes this covenant or gives them these rules, before any of that, before He asks them to do anything, what does He do? He frees them. He redeems them. He does that first. He does that before he requires anything of them. Right? God tells Pharaoh, Let my people go. He's given them uh, the identity as his people before he ever expects anything from them. He leads with gift, with grace, with unconditional love. What God doesn't say is, um, here's the law, here's the commandments. If you start keeping these and you're faithful to this. Then I will be your God. Then I'll bless you as long as you do that. No, he blesses first, calls them to himself first, and then gives them the commandments. And what God is saying through this very intentional order, what he's communicating to them is that your status with God is not predicated on your obedience first. Your status with God is not... um, your status with God is not predicated on obedience first. This is what happens throughout every story, every promise, every interaction with God. It's what happens with us, right? The New Testament tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, Jesus didn't say, hey, get healthy first. And then when you're healthy, then I'm going to come and I'm going to save you. No, Jesus says, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. He says in uh, Luke 5, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or in Ephesians, it says that that salvation, our salvation from our sin is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. No one can say, hey, I have spiritually arrived on my own efforts. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. He offers the blessing first and then he says, take your yoke upon me. It's this pattern that we see over and over again in John 8. Again, Jesus encounters this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and all the religious leaders are wanting Jesus to condemn her. But, the, but after he has a back and forth with them and they kind of scatter and leave, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, did no one stick around to accuse you? And she says, uh, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. You have, you have forgiveness. There's grace. And then he says, go and sin no more. This is the pattern we see over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. This idea of a God who initiates with forgiveness, with grace, with salvation, with redeeming, and with blessing. We're given the identity and position first, and then God begins the work of making us into His image. And that's the story of uh, the Israelites here in this text. Our lives mirror, mirror their story as well. He extended the grace and the blessing to them first, and He does the same for us. So that's the first way. But the second way that our story mirrors theirs is that we don't exactly like that arrangement with God, this whole grace and no merit arrangement. The way that our lives and our story mirror their story is we would prefer to have a religion or a faith where we have a sense of control and merit in it, where we do something to earn something. The vast majority of people, by the way, throughout all of history, um, have been religious. Their problem isn't that they were not religious. Throughout all of humanity, people have loved religion. Humanity humanity has loved, or we're not opposed to it. Uh, But we want a religion that gives us some merit, some say, and some control. We want gods that we can impress with our works and deeds. Even today, you know, it's like, oh, well, we live in a secular society or secular world now. We actually don't. Um, I read this Pew Research poll that said that, uh, let me find the number here so I don't get it wrong, but 83.7% of the world today, 83.7% of people in the world today say that they hold to some sort of faith and belief in a God. So we love religion. We love this idea of a God. We love religion. But the caveat is we love a religion where we have some merit in it, we have some control, where we can manipulate God a little bit with our actions. And that's the problem here with the Israelites. The problem here isn't that they are abandoning religion. We've missed it if we look at this and we're, we're like, oh, they've abandoned faith and, and religion. They haven't. They are deep, re- deeply religious. In fact, they aren't even abandoning the Yahweh God, the Lord God. Uh, The golden calf is, in part, them taking the bounty and the plunder that they got from Egypt. Like, where do you think they got the gold? They were slaves. Where do you think they got the gold? We know that they got the gold from Egypt as, like, bounty and plunder. Like, after God had just completely ravaged the country with uh, plagues, the people were like, take our gold, get out of here right? Take, take it all and leave. Like we just, what is it going to take to get you guys out of here? So Israel walks away tremendously wealthy. And so in their minds, they're like, we're doing this amazing thing, right? We're, we're taking all of the bounty and the plunder that God has given us, and we're, we're forming this beautiful calf, this, this beautiful piece of art to commemorate what God and all, and all gods, Right? What all gods have done for us. And that's what they're thinking in their mind. They're expanding their idea of religion and religiosity. And then further, under Aaron's directive in Exodus 32, five, they set aside a whole day just for the Lord. It says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early. They're ambitious. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So they are dedicated to impressing God. They are deeply religious. When when, um, God disappears into the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai with Moses, they're so ambitious about their religion that it's like they're thinking to themselves, God told us to wait. God told us just to be still and to wait for Him. But man, what if Moses is gone? Like we're religious people, we need to we. Well, let's just take matters into our own hands, and let's let's do something here. Let's 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 approach God with our works. Let's impress God with our works. Look, God, we've crafted this golden calf and altar, this beautiful art in Your honor. See, God, we've earned Your favor. We're a people that as we relate to you, we can earn your blessing, your, your favor. But here's the thing about merit-based religion, and here's the thing about a merit-based God, in doing as we, as we fall into this trap oftentimes of doing things to try to appease God. Oftentimes, I think this is what they're doing here too, oftentimes we're just doing and using religious things in order to avoid having to deal with the real God on His terms. The people here are basically saying, hey God, I know that you've given us these Ten Commandments. I know that you've already given us the terms and the way in which we are to relate to you. But we kind of want to dictate some of those terms. Here's what we're going to dictate to you. Here's how we're going to relate to you. And that's, and that's, if we're honest, and speaking to the church, right? Speaking to us, those of us here in the church, that's like a lot of us. If we're honest our prodigalness, using kind of an insider language or term, our prodigalness isn't that we're the younger son now that's run off, right, and is, and is in total rebellion. That's, you, that's not our prodigalness. Our prodigal, prodigalness, for many of us here, is that of the older brother, right? Hiding behind righteousness and works, but still having a distance, a, 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 a miscommunication or no communication, No real relationship, right, with the Father. Like, I'm here, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, I'm very religious, I'm doing all the right things, but I still have a break in the relationship with the Father. That's often our story. We like to be religious. It makes us feel good about ourselves. Because when I'm religious and I'm doing religious things to impress God, then I don't have to be fashioned into His image. When I'm busy fashioning my golden calf, my work, when I'm busy doing that, then there's no time to fashion me into the image of of God. I don't have to change. We'll happily be be religious if it helps us avoid having to deal with God. We conflate our works for God uh, as a relationship with God. Does that make sense? Like, they're not the same thing. We confuse our service to God as communion with Him. They're not the same. Uh, We are prone to distort our relationship with God as a relationship for God. We just get busy doing things. So then the question is, okay, then what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do, right? Well, what were they supposed to do? what were they supposed to do? Nothing. They were supposed to wait. They were, their instructions were just to wait for God to show up. And this idea of waiting on God or waiting for God is throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Psalm 37:7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, Micah 7, 7, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, Isaiah 40, verse 31, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. This idea of waiting is pretty simple. We wait for God because there's nothing we can do on our own strength and merit. We just have to wait for God. And so the next step for a lot of us here as we receive this here today, the next step for a lot of you is to realize that there's no next step. Listen, some of you, some of you, and I I believe because I I say this because I know a lot of you are the nicest people in the world. You're the nicest people in the world, but you're trying to avoid God and all of that niceness and all of that serving without having to encounter God by waiting on him in the still and quiet moments. If you look at at how and where God shows up to meet with people, it's always in these quiet, obscure moments of waiting. 1 Kings 19.11, when uh, God um, is gonna meet with Elijah, he says, go wait for me and I'm gonna show up. And so Elijah waits for God and there's this massive wind that comes by this mountain and literally the wind is just tearing the, the, the mountain apart. It says that the wind is so strong, the mountain is just being blown to bits. And it says in that passage in First Kings, God wasn't in the wind. Then there's an earthquake that comes. It says God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there's a fire that comes, and it says God isn't in the fire. And then God shows up. And how does God show up? In a still, small voice, a quiet voice. Matthew 6 verse 5, when Jesus is instructing us instructing his disciples, here's how you meet with God, here's how you commune with God. Does he say, hey, you put on these big religious activities, like you go out in public and you do all these? No, in fact, he says the opposite. He says, hey, don't be like all of the, the people who make all this pomp and circumstance. They have all these big ceremonies, all these big religious activities. They make these very public prayers. Don't do that. If you want to meet with God, this is what Jesus says. He says in verse uh, in Matthew six, uh, verse six. But when you pray, when you go to meet with God, go into a room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. If you want to communion with God, if you want to really deal with God, it's like this idea of well, grab your Bible and go find a corner or a closet early in the morning or late at night that's quiet, right, and, and wait for God to show up. The problem is. And many of you know this to be true because I've I've tried to be a person that is devotional, right? And you've tried to to be a person maybe that's devotional and be in the Word and to pray. It's kind of hard, isn't it? And when we get to that quiet place and we begin to wait for God and we begin to pray, what happens? I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, I'm just, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes. What happens like 60 seconds into your prayer? Total distraction, right? Your mind starts going everywhere. It is so hard for us to just sit and be quiet and wait. Like, I swear that sitting down and just reading my Bible and praying for 30 minutes, like once a week, twice a week, five times a week, that's that's harder, that's a harder spiritual discipline uh, than prepping a sermon. (laughs) Like, it's hard work to meet with God in a still and quiet place. It's no wonder they had a hard time, right? They wanted to get busy doing something religious, and we do the same thing. We always like, resist this God who approaches us, initiates to us, and leads with grace and blessing and wants to do that they relate to us on those kinds of terms. We always push back on that kind of a God with merit, with wanting to earn it. Their story is our story. That's the bad news, right? The bad news is that their story is our story because the condition of people hasn't changed. Uh, The good news is that the character and person of God also hasn't changed. What does God do with their failures? (laughs) What does God do to them after they just epically blow it? He gives them the commandments and they epically blow it. Does he just say, fine, that's it, and wipe them out? He's just done with them? He discards them? No. Instead, he teaches Moses something about the God of promise. that the God of promise keeps his promises. In Exodus 32, it says, The Lord says to Moses, in verse 9, Exodus 32, I have seen the people, behold, it's a stiff-necked people. God says they're stubborn. Now, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I'll consume them in order that I'll make a great nation of you, Moses. So he's, he's leading Moses to uh it's like the socratic method like god isn't actually wanting to destroy the people he's testing moses to see how moses will respond moses i'm going to destroy him and i'll make a nation of you and moses says but god you can't do that in verse 13 he's like god no you can't do that because you've already promised to abraham and to isaac and to jacob you promised to make a great nation out of them not me and if you break your promise to them, then you're a God who breaks promises, and you're not a God who breaks promises. And God is like, exactly, exactly. Even when my people immediately break the promises, I'm not a God who breaks promises. I'm going to keep mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to be their God. I might punish them or discipline them, right? But they're going to continue to be my people, And so the story here that is mirrored in our lives is is the same. It's the same story, and it's this. That God leads with grace. He leads with grace. He frees us. He rescues us. He redeems us. And even after that, we have this relationship where we're constantly trying to insert our own merit and earn it. And God responds to that disobedience and that uh, offense with more grace. He responds to us with more grace. That is what this text teaches us about God and ourselves. That in our last breath, in a lifetime of living, when you get to the end of your life and you're at your last breath, you'll have zero merit. Nothing. All you'll have is salvation belongs to the Lord. That's it. Um, When I was a kid, I can remember a professional golfer being on television. His, his name was cool as Chichi Rodriguez. That's just a cool name. I don't know, does anybody remember Chichi Rodriguez? Oh, wow, look at that. Uh, like, some of you were, like, late 80s, 90s. All right. Um, so, Chichi Rodriguez, and he had this signature move. I remember my dad would watch golf, and we would always just pass out, fall asleep, watching golf, right? That's the whole point of watching golf, is so you can take a nap. And, uh, yeah, there's... And uh, so Chi-Chi Rodriguez, though, was, he, was, he was exciting to watch. He wasn't boring like all of the other golfers because when Chi-Chi Rodriguez did something cool on the golf course or, you know, impressive, he would take his uh, golf club and pull it out like it was a sword. And then he would have this little move where he would, like, you know, do this. It was, it was cool. As a kid, I'm like, that's my favorite golfer, Chi-Chi Rodriguez. So Chi-Chi grew up. He had a long career, a 30-plus year career as a golfer. He was worth millions and millions of dollars. Uh, But he grew up dirt poor in Puerto Rico in a community where there was not uh, food stability and oftentimes people would go hungry. They would not have enough to eat. But Chi Chi and his family um, were able to supplement the food that they could buy with the food that they grew in the backyard. They had this giant banana tree that provided all kinds of bananas. And so they had this, so they weren't as bad off maybe as some other families in terms of food. Uh, well, Chi-Chi recalls that late one night, his dad comes to him when it's, it's late, it's, they're getting ready to go to bed, but his dad comes and says, hey, Chi-Chi, he like, and he like looks out the back, the back, and they notice as they're looking out the back, he's looking out the backyard with his dad, that a neighbor has come over and is stealing bananas from their tree. And so Chi-Chi's like, oh no. So his, his dad says, go get my machete. And so Chi-Chi's like, okay. So he goes and gets the machete. And he's like, oh man, my dad's about to like Freddy Krueger some people, right? <laughs> like, so, so, so his dad goes out the back with the machete and he confronts the neighbor. And he, he says his dad grabs a cluster of bananas and cuts them down and gives them to the neighbors. And he recalls that his dad said this, you, you never need to try and rob me. The next time you're starving, come through the front door and eat with us. Ooh. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And we don't have to try and steal God's favor. We come to the meal empty-handed with nothing. We don't earn our salvation. Communion, when we come forward here in a, mu- in a minute, communion is kind of like stepping up to God's front door, hungry, starving, and empty, and saying, I'm here to commune with you. I'm here to eat, but I've got nothing. I come come with nothing. I've got nothing. I've got no merit. I need your grace upon grace. And then God gives us that grace, and he communes with us. See, God shows up, and he meets us. He communes with us when we approach him like this, with open hands. So we end each week with communion, and in a moment here, the band is going to come forward, and they're they're going to play. And um, it's communion is is a chance for us to commune with God, to pray, to receive, and listen to the Spirit, what the Spirit is telling us. Uh, but also, we're communing with each other. We're relating to God and to each other. Um, and the bread represents Christ's body, which is broken for us. The bread is provided, right? Christ provided Himself as the sacrifice for us. We don't show up with our own merits. Same thing is true with the blood. The blood represents Christ's blood shed for us. And so when you come forward, you can take a piece of the bread and you can dip it in the wine or the juice as your conscience permits. And it's simply a reminder that Christ has provided the meal. Christ has provided the cover for your sins. He's redeemed. He's rescued you. He's initiated with salvation first. And it's an invitation to show up empty-handed and remember and receive God's blessing and presence in a world where we don't earn it. And so let's go ahead and pray, and the band's going to come forward, and then if you're a Christian and you proclaim, Jesus says, Lord, you don't have to be a member here of our church. If, as long as you are someone who's a believer, you can come forward and you can participate in communion. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for the, the privilege it is to, to bring your word and to uh, preach through uh, the book of Exodus. And um, Lord, we it's easy for us to try to show up and earn it. And in fact, I think it's maybe easier for us to get busy doing those spiritual activities as opposed to, um, to trying to meet with you in the still and in the quiet. I pray that we would be a people that would set aside uh, our attempts to earn your favor or try to um, earn our salvation and that instead we would come to you empty-handed. We would come to you quietly, prayerfully, and that you would meet us. And I pray that for all of us here. Um, Again, we want to close this time out, God, just to worship you to praise you. We, we come with nothing other than uh, the words of praise on our lips. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that made this all possible, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.